Good morning, West Park. If you will, turn back to Luke chapter 2. It's the passage that was read for us earlier. Uh, we're going to be hanging out in a couple different chapters of Luke this morning. But I want to start by just focusing on one verse from Luke chapter 2. And I promise it's one that you've heard a lot. Uh, it's quoted a lot this time of year. And so let's look again just at Luke 2, verse 10. Luke 2, verse 10. So just remember the context. An angel appears to some lowly shepherds out in the field to announce to them Jesus' birth. You may remember that the angel lets them know where to find Jesus, tells them how he can be identified, that he will be swaddled and lying in a manger. But notice the first thing that the angel says. Here's verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Just three phrases pulling out of this verse. So number one, good news. Number two, of great joy. And number three, for all the people. So let's just work through those. Just a warning, one and two are going to be very quick, so don't get too excited. We're on point three pretty quickly. One and two are going to be very quick. I'm going to hang out for a while on point three. And so let's start with number one. Good news. Good news. The angel says, I bring you good news. Now, uh, this is a word that, that you probably know if you've been in church for a while. Good news. It's the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion. Here's what it looks like. That should look a little bit familiar because there's some words that we use that come straight from that Greek word. Okay, So evangelical comes from that word. Evangelize comes from that word. You see the word angel right in the middle, right? So angel means messenger. That's in that word. So the angel comes with the euangelion. Here's what it means literally. E-U, U means good, and angelion means announcement. So this angel comes to the shepherds with a good announcement. It's a word. This is the word that we translate as gospel. So the angel shows up to the shepherds, and what's he come with? The gospel, a good announcement, the good news. And what you need to see is this word is not a distinctively Christian word. It's not only didn't, you know, the Christians didn't make it up. This angel didn't make it up. This is a word that was used often in the Roman Empire where this is taking place. And so just to, to give you a, a kind of a feel for how this word was usually used, I want you to think about this. So if, you, if you don't mind, let's use our imagination a little bit. Are we okay with that? Use your imagination. Let's picture that all of us in here, in this room, we're living in a city. Okay, so all of us, we live together in a city, and our city is at war with another city. And so our army has gone out, our king has gone out. And so can you picture, we're here, let's say this is the marketplace, we're all here, we're all hanging out. And let's say that our city is just surrounded by these rolling green hills. Can you picture that? So we're down here in the middle, surrounded by these rolling green hills. And our army, our king is off at battle, and we don't know what's going on, right? There's no Twitter to get updates, nothing like that. We don't know how it's going. Ever so often, maybe we get an update, you know, something, you know, someone who's died, something like that. But this is going on week after week after week. And all we can do is hope and pray and just hope that things go our way. And let me tell you what we don't want. This would be the worst case scenario. Here's what we don't want. We don't want to look up over those green hills 
and see the opposing king marching into our town. If that happens, it's bad, right? Here's, here's, here's our future. We're either going to be slaves or we're going to be killed right then and there. So every day you wake up, you look over those hills, and you just hope that it's one of our guys who comes back. Okay? So picture day after day after day, anxious, and then you look up one day, and something catches your eye. And it's a guy running as fast as he possibly can. And he kind of looks familiar. That's one of ours. And he's yelling something. He's saying, good news. Good news. Good news. Our king is victorious. You feel that, right? The relief of that. Our king is victorious. And if our king's victorious, what does that mean? We're victorious, right? We have won. We did nothing, but we have won. That's euangelion. It's good news. It's a good announcement of a victorious king who has come. Here's the crazy thing about the Christmas story. That's what the angel's doing. That's it, right? The angel is coming to the shepherd saying, euangelion, good news. I have a good announcement. But the king didn't ride in on a war horse. He didn't ride in with trumpets blaring. He will one day, right? We look forward to that. He will come like that one day. But he didn't the first time. He came in in the womb of a poor teenage peasant girl, not even married. That's how he came in to Bethlehem. And the shepherds are told, you can find this king. Here's how you're going to know. It's a baby. <laughs> What's more helpless than a baby? Like literally, what is more helpless than a baby? That's the king. He's victorious. He's here. And he's a little baby swaddled up and lying in a manger. That's the good news. That's number one, the good news. It's not just good news, though. Here's point two. It's good news of great joy. And, and I mean, in that illustration I just gave, if you picture that, that you can see how that would be joyous, right? Like, we're not going to die. Like, that, that's good, okay? That's, that's a joyful thing. You can see how that would be joyful good news. But let, let's talk about this. What makes this good news joyful? What makes this good news of great joy? Well, let me tell you a little story from my life, a conversation me and my wife Allie had the other day, st- uh, sticking with this theme of babies being born that we talk about at Christmas. So we were in the car the other day, and we were talking about Haddon, who's about eight months old, uh, talking about the day that he was born. And we were just talking about this day, kind of, you know, like rehashing our memories and stuff. And Allie said something that in the moment I thought was absolutely crazy. And she said it just kind of in passing, but she said this. She said, I really enjoyed that experience. And I thought she was kidding. I, I, I got laughed because I was there, Okay. <laughs> Um, and, and what she went through to have our two boys is not my definition of a good time, right? Like, that's, that's not it, okay? Like, I mean, I was stressed. Like, that was a, it wasn't a good day for me, right? Like, this is, I'm stressed. I can't imagine for her. And so I left that conversation, honestly, not really knowing what to think. Maybe I made fun of her a little bit, if I'm, if I'm being honest. But in preparing this sermon, I was, I was, Jesus basically came at me here because I realized that Jesus uses this exact scenario as an illustration for what true Christian joy is. 
So Jesus kind of put me in my place here a little bit. And I'll read it for you. Here's John 16. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is the night before his death. And he's talking about what's going to happen to them. And, and this is what he says, starting in verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. There is a lot of anguish in a hospital room when a baby is being born. But when a mother looks in the face of that baby, a lot of y'all experience this, when a mother looks in the face of that baby, it's all joy, right? It is all joy. And the reason is because giving birth is the ultimate example of great suffering with even greater hope. Great suffering with great hope. Tim Keller says this, the opposite of joy is not sadness, it's hopelessness. Hope and joy are intertwined. And so having a baby brings a lot of suffering, but it's a joyous occasion because it is a hopeful occasion. It's suffering, but the baby is coming. And when the baby comes, it is so beautiful and you love it so much that the baby captures your heart, not the pain you went through, right? It's joyous because even though it's suffering, it's hopeful. And so when Allie said, I enjoyed that, I thought she was in denial, right? But really, it's, it's the perfect thing to say. It's the perfect thing to say because that was a joyous experience. She's not, you know, she's not in denial. She's not, she remembers the pain fully, right? She remembers that. But what happened is when Knox was born, when Haddon was born, she looked in their faces and they captured her heart. Her heart was no longer captured by the pain and suffering she went through. It was captured by her love for our boys. So a weary world rejoices because this baby has been born in Bethlehem. Why? Because hope has come. That's it. Hope has come. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Amen. And he is a hope so great that we can rejoice even in a suffering world. It's a joy that our circumstances can't touch. Right? That's what Jesus is. Having joy, think about it like this. Having joy means you kind of have a buoyancy about you. When the waves of life are crashing in and sending you all over the place, because they will, you don't sink. You still get wet, right? You still get knocked around, but you don't sink. That's the joy that Jesus provides. Joy doesn't mean the absence of suffering. It means you have Jesus even in your suffering. And he's captured your heart. That's point two. We'll talk more about joy here in a second. But let's go to point three. And as I said, this is going to take a lot longer. But the angel says this. He says he comes with good news of great joy. Here's number three. For all the people. For all the people. So it's good news because this news, this joyous news is hope for everyone. 
And if you think about it, this story actually shows that to be true, just in the circumstances of the story. Because first of all, how Jesus is born shows the circumstances of the story. He's born to, as I said, a, a, a poor family from a town no one cares about. He's born and laid in a manger. And then you've probably heard this in sermon after sermon. The people that the news comes to, lowly shepherds, right, uneducated, dirty, right? looked down upon. That's who this news comes to. And if you remember, we, we went through Luke for like, I think, 10 years or something here recently. <laughs> but if you remember in Luke, if you remember, Luke kind of rehashes this over and over and over. He keeps telling these stories where it's the lowly people who get it right, right? You remember this? It's the people you don't expect who are the ones who actually get it right. And so he's showing that this is good news of great joy for all people, and he shows it over and over and over again in his gospel. So here's what I want to do. If you will, turn over with me just a couple pages to Luke chapter 7, okay? Luke chapter 7. I just want to walk through, spend the rest of our time, we're going to do this. I want to spend the rest of our time walking through verses 36 through 50. 36 through 50. And let me just tell you, this was a story uh, that kind of captured my heart a few years ago, and I can't get away from it. It's, it's so amazing. And so let me read this. And what we're going to do, just so you know, keep, keep your Bible open. I'm just going to read a little bit at a time. I'll talk about it, and then we'll kind of go through verse by verse. So let's just start here by reading verse 36. It says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, being Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at table. Okay. So it starts out, you know, innocent enough. Jesus gets invited to a dinner party by a Pharisee. Now, if you remember in our study of Luke what the Pharise who the Pharisees were, the Pharisees were the religious rulers in Jesus' community. These were known as godly men. They were morally upright men. The title Pharisee literally means the one who is separated. So if you, view the, if you see the Pharisees in this day, you would just think of them as people who are better than everyone else, right? And so that's who this Pharisee is who invites Jesus over for a meal. And we're going to find out later in the story that his name is Simon. So as we're thinking about Simon, here's what we can know about him just by his title. Simon would be a well-respected man. He'd be a well-educated man. He'd be a well-connected man. And he would be an unbelievably moral man a keeper of the law. The guy knew his Bible, okay? He knew his Bible. If you're in a community group with him, he's the one who does all the talking because he knows his stuff, right? That's Simon. He knows his stuff. But what makes this story so great is that Luke puts him up in comparison to another character who is his exact opposite. So if that's all true of Simon, morally upright, connected, looked up to, in walks his exact opposite. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And so Luke, the author, has introduced us to Simon the Pharisee, and then he uses this word, behold. Whenever that pops up, that basically means this. Pay attention. <laughs> it's going to get crazy. Right? Like that's what the angel says. Behold, pay attention, it's about to get crazy. That's what Luke says here. Behold, pay attention, someone is about to walk into the house. 
And Luke tells us the person who walks into this house is a woman of the city, a sinner. A woman of the city, a sinner. Now here's what you need to see. What's crazy here is not that someone walked into this house. Okay? So we, this is not just our typical dinner party. This is a dinner party where people would have been walking in and out. So picture that. People would have been walking in and out. So if a religious leader was having another well-known religious leader over to eat, they would make it a public event. Okay? And so people would come in, you would have the inner table, which I'll talk about in a second, but you'd have the inner table, and then you would have this group that's around the outside listening in to what's happening. And that may sound weird, but, but really it's not. Think, of, okay, think about the educational value of that, right? Two great teachers sitting there talking. I mean, I have hundreds of podcasts downloaded on my phone. What are they? Smart people talking, right? Like it's the same thing. I just have it on my phone. And so people would come to listen to these two people engage. So people are, stand, are, are sitting all around listening in. Notice this too as you picture the scene. It tells us in verse 36 that they're reclining at table. So don't picture our typical table with chairs and things like that. They're all reclining. And so you can picture like a, a little coffee table down here, maybe a little bit bigger than our typical coffee table. And they're all laying down, and they have their, their elbow down in front of the table, and they're able to then eat from the table with their other hand. You see that? So they're all sitting there, and they're reclining at this table. And so Luke says what happens next is crazy. But what's crazy isn't that this woman, or that a woman came in. What's crazy is that it's this woman who came in, Right? People weren't paying attention that other people were walking in, but they start paying attention when this woman walks in, a woman who is described as a woman of the city, a sinner. And here's what that's probably telling us. This is a prostitute. Okay? That's, who, that's who's probably walking in here. This woman is coming in, and so she's a prostitute. And so as I said, she is Simon's opposite. So Simon is seen as morally upright. Simon is seen as just well-respected. This woman was seen as a sinner. She was seen as dirty. She was looked down upon by everyone. And when she walks into the room, people take notice. And we don't know much else about this woman than that. We don't know much about her life. We don't know much about her upbringing. We don't know anything. But here's what we know. We know what she was there to do. She was there to find Jesus. Okay? This is a woman who is on a mission. Here's what it says in verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So she comes up behind Jesus. Can you picture this scene? Jesus is reclining at the table. And she comes up, and she sees his face, weathered from the sun. And maybe she then looks down at his hands and sees his calloused hands from years as a carpenter. And then his feet, which would be sticking out towards her, right? Then his feet catch her attention. They're dirty. No one, usually you walk in, you come to a dinner, someone cleans your feet. No one had cleaned his feet. They're dirty from walking on the dirt all day long. 
And so she comes to find Jesus, and who knows, maybe she had a speech prepared. That's how I picture it, right? She's standing in front of the mirror, going through exactly what she's going to say to Jesus. She has something she wants to say. But she walks in, and she can't get it out. What does she do instead? She starts weeping. Weeping. I mean, that, maybe that's the first time Jesus even noticed her. Started feeling some warm drops hitting his feet. I was like, what, what is that? And behind him, there's this woman who is standing there weeping. And then she bends down and she begins to use her tears to start cleaning his feet. And she's kissing them. And she can't get enough of him, right? She's there with Jesus. And she just can't help but kiss him. Let me point something out. that okay, I mean, that's amazing, right? It's amazing. Let me point something out that makes this just really amazing. You remember Luke 2. What's the first thing that the angel says to the shepherds? Fear not. Fear not. Why is that? Well, I mean, maybe we just say, because that would be scary, right? Like if, if you're just doing your job and an angel comes to you, that would be scary, and that's true, right? This, this angel doesn't come like, what's his name? Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, right? Like he didn't come like that. This angel comes in glory, right? And so that would be scary. But I think there's actually something much deeper to it. Since sin entered the world, Genesis 3, human beings have been afraid of God, right? Human beings have been afraid of God. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden after they sinned? They hid, right? They hid. Human beings are afraid of God's glory. And over and over again in Scripture, they're afraid of God to be in God's presence, and they're afraid to be in the angel's presence because they have come bringing the glory of God. Over and over again, human beings are afraid because when we are in the presence of God, our sinfulness comes to the surface. And we see it clearly, right? We see our sinfulness more clearly than ever before. And we freak out. That's what human beings do in the presence of God. So notice this story. This woman, her title, this is how, how does Luke describe, how would you like this? Here's how Luke described her, a sinner. Like that's it, like that's her Instagram bio, a sinner, okay? That's how Luke describes her. And what does she do? She walks right into the presence of God and begins to kiss his feet, unafraid. People scoffing at her. She doesn't care. She's going to Jesus. She walks right into his presence. And then notice this. This is just amazing. Notice what she does. She does two things, and you can read them and think, okay, what, I, don't, I don't really know what that means. It doesn't mean much to us in our culture. But they're absolutely amazing. Here's the first thing she does. The first thing she does is she lets down her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. And I always read that and thought, oh, okay. Well, I mean, she didn't have a towel. Right? So, like, she used her hair, whatever. But so much more than that. In this culture, a woman never let down her hair. Only for her husband. That's the only person that you could let down your hair for, the one you loved most. This was so serious that if a woman let down her hair for anyone else, she could be divorced for it. And this woman comes to Jesus, and she is with the one that she loves most. And she just lets it all go, 
right? She just lets it go. She lets down her hair. And so in that scene, we can picture gasps when this happens. <gasps> what? And Jesus isn't stopping this? What? She lets down her hair. Here's the other thing the woman does. She brings out an alabaster flask of ointment. So here's what that is. An alabaster flask would have been a little tiny container that was filled with perfume. And for women who were wealthy enough to buy it, they would purchase this little perfume-filled container and they would tie it around their neck. And so this alabaster flask had a, had a long neck. Okay, so picture that. Okay, this little flask, long neck, and at the top, it had a little tiny hole where the, the smell of the perfume that was in it could come out just a little bit out of the top of that little hole. Why is this important? If you had this alabaster flask and you were able to wear it around your neck, you were automatically attractive in this culture. Automatically. Here's why. What did they not have in this day? Air conditioning. <laughs> okay. Deodorant. <laughs> the soap that we have, right? Most people stunk. Okay. So if you had this alabaster flask of ointment filled with this, this perfume, and you wrapped it around your neck, it set you apart. It gave you the attractiveness that you were looking for. And you could stand out. Now remember, what does this woman do for a living? She's a prostitute. What does she need more than anything in the world? To be attractive, right? So, I mean, if she's going to put food on the table, she has to be attractive. Her life is dependent on the fact that she is attractive. So this little alabaster flask had to be the most important thing she owed. Without it, she truly has nothing. And what does she do? She brings that to Jesus, right? You know, the, the wise men bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. She brings something even crazier. She brings everything. This is, this is everything. Like, what is she bringing to Jesus as a gift? Literally everything. What's she doing? She is coming to Jesus. And I want you to picture this. That little alabaster flask, the only way to get the perfume out was to break it. So she is coming to Jesus. She is kneeling at his feet. She is taking this thing that has been her livelihood the center of her life, her idol, and she is breaking it and pouring it out at his feet. She is taking it and she is pouring it out and she is saying, Jesus, this is the thing I've been looking for joy in. But now I found it in you. Take it. True joy is only found in you. Take it. Isn't that an amazing picture of what it means to become a Christian? We all have that alabaster flask that we're gripping onto because we think it'll bring us joy. If I just, maybe, maybe we wouldn't say it this way, but we think, if I just had that, <laughs> if I just had that family, if I just had that job, if I just had that amount in my bank account, if I just had that, then I would have joy. But becoming a follower of Jesus is taking that thing slamming it down on the ground and pouring it all out at his feet. And that's what she does. That's what she does. That's true joy. Remember this too. 
Remember this too. What this woman is experiencing in this moment is the great hope of every follower of Jesus. She is seeing Jesus Christ face to face. If you are in him, that's your hope, right? That's your hope. How can we have joy in even the worst situations? In intense suffering, how can we have joy? Because we look forward to that. That's it. We are going to see him face to face. And we are going to spend eternity with him in a place where he will wipe the tears from our eyes. Where pain and suffering and sin will be no more. And he will be there. That's the hope, right? Let me quote my my friend back there, John McClone Sr. If that don't light your fire, then your wood's wet. Did I say that right? That good? Okay, good. All right, verse 39 here. Verse 39. The story shifts from the woman back to Simon the Pharisee. And I want you to remember here the the angel's announcement in Luke chapter 2. He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You know, some don't like that it's for all the people. (laughs) Some don't like that. Here's what we're told about Simon, starting in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. You see what happened there? Simon thinks to himself, Well, if Jesus was a prophet, he would have known who this woman is. He's saying that to himself, right? And Jesus answers him. So Jesus knows exactly what Simon is thinking. And even more important than that, I think, he knows exactly who it is who is touching him. He knows, like Simon knows a little bit about who is touching Jesus. Jesus knows who this woman is. Jesus knows all the mistakes she's made. Jesus knows all the time she's fallen short. Jesus knows all the time she's run away from him. And how does he respond? Mercy. As he always does, mercy. You know, I've said this before. The litmus test of whether you understand the gospel or not is what you do when you blow it. What you do when you're the most, you feel the most dirty. This woman runs to his feet, right? And he responds with mercy. And then Jesus responds to, to Simon's feelings about the whole thing. And he, he tells a parable. And I'll, I'll summarize the parable. It basically goes like this. Two guys owed the same guy money. One owed a little and one owed ten times what the other owed. The money lender then forgives them both. Who will rejoice more? Some of Jesus' parables are kind of complicated. This one's not, right? The one who owed more, right? If you owe more and it's forgiven, you'll rejoice more. I mean, here, picture this scene, just to, to bring it into our lives. Picture this scene. Let's say you come home one day, and your neighbor's out in the yard doing yard work, and, and they catch you before you walk inside. And they say, hey, um, while you were gone, some, you know, someone showed up. They, they said that you owed them money, and so I took care of it. So don't worry about that. What's your reaction? It's a trick question, right? <laughs> it depends on how much you owed. So if it was someone coming, a friend coming because, you know, they paid for your Starbucks, 
so you owe them like $10 for a drink or whatever at this point, then you probably, you know, pat the person on the back, say thank you, and go about your day. But what if you owed $10 million to the IRS? <laughs> and that, you know, guy showed up in a really official-looking suit demanding the money right then, and your neighbor paid your debt. What do you do at that point? You might even fall at his feet, start kissing them. I don't know. Run and get your perfume. I don't, like, I don't know. You may, you're going to react with a lot more rejoicing. There's going to be a lot more joy. That's Jesus' point. Right? He says this in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So Simon is looking at what this woman is doing, and he's disgusted. How could she do that? Right? How could she kiss his feet? How could she do that with her hair? And Jesus is saying, you don't get it because your heart is cold to me. I've come as a Savior, and you don't think you need one, right? I've come as a Savior. You don't care that I'm here because you don't think you need a Savior. That's why you have no joy. The good news only brings great joy if you think you need it. And that's Simon's problem. He doesn't think he needs it. He's a sinner just like the woman, but he doesn't think he needs it. This is important. I mean, please, please listen to this, okay? This is important because this, this news honestly changed my life in college. This right here, okay? You know that there are actually two ways to reject Jesus. There are two ways to reject Jesus. You can do it like the woman running away from him. I mean, we assume that that's, that was her life, right? She was grabbing her alabaster flask, running as far away from God as she possibly could, doing her own thing. Right? It's the prodigal son story, right? Dad, give me my inheritance. You're dead to me. I'm getting out of here. You can reject God that way. But you can also reject Jesus through self-righteousness, doing all the right things so that you think you don't need a savior. Doing all the right things so you think you don't need a savior. But the message of the shepherd was that a savior had come. A savior had come. I love this. Flannery O'Connor, I think, captured this perfectly in describing a character in one of her novels. She said this, There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus for some people is to avoid sin. It's to come to church every Sunday looking real nice, to not make the big mistakes that other people are making, avoid all the big sins, give the Jehovah Jireh, lead a community group, do all those things, but not because you love Jesus, but because you want to control him. You see that? If I do all these things, if I do everything right, if I give enough, if I look the part, if I look like Simon, if I'm morally upright, if everyone looks at me and sees me as a good person, a help to society, then God has to do what I want. Right? So I don't need a savior. I can do it my own. I can do it myself. I can do it my own way. That's scary, isn't it? That's scary. There are a lot of people who on the outside seem to be genuinely following Jesus. But it turns out they don't want Jesus at all. They just want what he can give. 
I'm telling you, that, that was me for a lot of my life. And I had to repent of that, right? Big time. Think about this. Why do so many people who claim to be Christians consistently lack joy? Because over and over again in Scripture, it seems like just like a baby brings joy, it seems like following Jesus brings joy, right? It should. Why do so many so-called Christians consistently lack joy? It's because Jesus has never captured their heart. Jesus never captured their heart. They're doing stuff they say is for him, but really it's just for themselves. And so when suffering comes, here's what they think. God, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. And so they get bitter. True joy is found when it's Jesus who captures your heart. As you can see here, this, this totally makes us rethink sin, right? Obviously, the woman is a sinner, of course. But Simon's a sinner too, right? Simon is a sinner too. And if that's true, then not only does this make, make us rethink sin, it also causes us to rethink what repentance looks like. Because when most of us think repentance, what we think about is this woman. We come to God with our list, right? God help me because I told that lie. God help me because I yelled at my kid. God help me because of that sexual sin I committed. And that, that is repentance, absolutely. But what this story teaches us and what, what Simon missed is that true repentance is also repenting of doing the right thing with the wrong motivation, right? I mean, how could Simon repent? This woman, her list was obvious. Simon probably didn't have a list like that. <laughs> he said, I've been good. I followed the law. I memorized the Bible. I go to church. I did it all. I gave. I did it all. What did he need to repent of? He needed to repent of doing the right things with the wrong motivations. Simon had an alabaster flask as well. He wasn't using it to be attractive. He wasn't using it to, 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 you know, as a prostitute. His alabaster flask was his own self-righteousness. And he needed to take that thing and break it at Jesus' feet and say, my joy is no longer found in that. It is only found in you. Someone summarized it well. They said, the main barrier between the Pharisees and God wasn't their sin. It was their damnable good works. Some of us need to take our good works and break them at the feet of Jesus and repent of the fact that they were never actually for him. They were for us. Let me close with this. One more question about joy. We've seen how the woman found true joy. We've seen why Simon lacks true joy. But let me ask you this. Do you know the, know the answer to this? What brings Jesus joy? What brings Jesus joy? What makes him have joy? And I love this. This is what Hebrews 12 tells us. It tells us what brings Jesus joy. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before him? What was the joy, the hope that Jesus had as he was dying on the cross? Well, I love this description from one author. He says it this way. He says, a compassionate doctor 
has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal, but on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men and women step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. See that? These people rejecting it because I want to take care of myself. I want to do it myself. I want to be my own savior. When they finally lay that down and come to get help, what does the doctor feel? Joy. What did Jesus feel when he was so rudely interrupted at that dinner? Joy. What does he feel when the Simons of the world take their alabaster flask of self-righteousness, break it at his feet, and lay it all out? Joy. What does heaven feel when a sinner repents? Jesus tells us, Luke 15, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me ask, do you have an alabaster flask this morning that Jesus is calling to break at his feet? Consider that as we respond. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll sing one last song together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for, for those of us who know you, for those of us who follow you and, and love you. We thank you that um, even though we were sinners, just like the woman, we had run away from you, we had gone to do our own thing, that you responded with mercy. And I pray for those of us who are more like Simon, who... Um, Maybe at times of our life, didn't think that we really needed you all that much. Or maybe we're sitting here today after decades of church attendance thinking we don't need you very much. I pray that you will open eyes. Open eyes that there's no one who doesn't need a Savior. There's no one who doesn't need repentance. Need to repent and break our alabaster flask and fall at your feet. Lord, we thank you that we can come broken and be mended. Whether we know we're broken or not, <laughs> we can come broken and you will mend us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.